All right, so this is the second lecture for ophthalmology. Um, we're covering hyphema, which is bleeding into the eye in the anterior chamber, uh, glaucoma, which has an acute and chronic form um, related to increased pressure inside the eye, cataracts, which is an opacity that develops in the lens, uh, macular degeneration, which is degeneration of the macula, <laughs> which we'll cover in more detail, and then uh, vascular occlusions within the retina. All right, so we're going to start with hyphema, all right? So hyphema is bleeding into the anterior chamber of the eye. Um, so a lot of times in test questions or, you know, different clinical vignettes and things like that, they'll describe it as a teardrop uh, pupil. So um, you can sometimes see it as a teardrop, but sometimes, like on the picture, probably on your left, you'll see some blood accumulated on the bottom of the eye. Uh, and essentially what it is is literally you're bleeding into the eye. What will cause that bleeding? Anything that will normally cause bleeding anywhere else in the body, like what? A cut, a trauma, right? I wouldn't say a cut necessarily, because if you cut the eye, it's not going to usually won't bleed inside. It'll bleed outside, and if you cut deep enough, you'll open the globe. But usually, some kind of blunt trauma will rupture a vessel in the eye, and it can lead to bleeding within the eye. All right. Um, so cut. What else? Who else bleeds? Thank you. 
and anytime you see it within the cornea, in the anterior chamber of the eye, that's a medical move. Right? Uh, when you have a patient who has this, what else do you think, uh, what else, like, we said compression of the nerve, but let's say there's no compression of the nerve at all, right? It's not that much, it's just a little bit of blood, the blood's hanging out on the bottom of the eye. How else do you think that that can cause vision loss besides pressure? Any idea? What's covering? Cool, right, so if you get blood, covering parts of your eye. So I wouldn't say necessarily the phobia, because it's bleeding in the anterior chamber of the eye. But if you get it on the inside of the cornea, it can stain it, and you can have vision loss because of that, right? So what do you think is something positionally that you can do to help your patients avoid that? Gravity's a thing. Not back. Forward. Keep it down. So usually they'll lay them a little bit. I think I forgot the exact degrees. But yeah, essentially you want them a little bit back, but you don't want them flat, but a little bit back and you want the blood to pull on the bottom of the eye so it doesn't affect the field of view, okay? Um, so those are the most important things, okay? And then ophthalmology follow-up for all these patients um, because you're not gonna fix this usually for them. Sometimes they'll go in there and they'll drain it out. Uh, there's different procedures, surgical procedures that they can do to clear the blood out, um, which we typically don't do um, as PAs. Uh, PAs actually are not that involved in ophthalmology from everything I've seen. I, haven't, I don't know a single ophthalmology PA. Do you guys? So they're out there. I know they are, but I haven't met one yet. So, uh, so hyphema. We already talked about all this. It's blood in the anterior chamber of the eye. It can be a complication of blunt or penetrating injury. If it has a penetrating injury, you will also have usually an open globe if it's a very severe penetrating injury, which we'll talk about open globe. I think it's Next class. Um, results from tears in the vessels, we talked about that. The goal of treatment and the initial assessment is to characterize the hyphema and associated ocular injuries, right? So you have a patient who comes in with this, your job is to say, all right, I know what this is, this is hyphema, how bad is it? Depending on how much of the uh, corneal surface area it's covering is how you grade it, right? Like 25%, 50%, uh, 75%, 100%, right? The whole anterior chamber is covered in blood, that's obviously associated with a much more uh, much poorer prognosis than if it's just like a 10% or 20% um, hyphema, right? So identify that, and then you try to identify any kind of injury that's already existing due to built-up intraocular pressure. Uh, how? By measuring the intraocular pressure. If you don't suspect a globe rupture, right? Because you don't want to put pressure if you suspect that there's an open globe. So you check the intraocular pressure, you're going to assess the severity of it, what percentage of bleeding is it, right? It's important to document that. You're going to assess for any kind of complications. Do they already have vision loss? Do they already have increased intraocular pressure causing vision loss? So obviously visual acuity is probably the first thing you're going to do in these patients. Um, that's the initial goal of, of treatment, all right? So we already talked about the etiology. We talked about poorer prognosis. Patients who have bleeding tendencies, be it by taking medications or by some other medical conditions that they may suffer from. Uh, spontaneous hyphema, super rare. Spontaneous subconjunctival hemorrhage, which we said is similar but not in the anterior chamber, it's in the conjunctiva. Those occur spontaneously all the time, right? People are, you know, just look in the mirror and they're like, what in the world, I got a bleed in my, in my subconjunctiva and they freak out and they come see you. So those do happen spontaneously quite a bit. Hyphema is very uncommon for that to happen spontaneously. 
So prompt evaluation by an ophthalmologist. So wherever you are, wherever you're seeing this patient, you gotta get them to see an ophthalmologist ASAP, uh, which is usually hard, which is why they usually go to an emergency room because an ophthalmologist will go consult in the ER. Um, but to get somebody like an immediate appointment with an ophthalmologist is usually complicated. So if I'm in the urgent care and I see a patient with hyphema, I'm gonna send them somewhere where they can get evaluated by an ophthalmologist, like an ER. Um, so decreased visual acuity, obviously, if it's uh, in the field of vision, if there's blood in the field of vision and you're seeing through blood, your visual acuity is gonna be affected. If there's increased intraocular pressure, your visual acuity will be affected. But otherwise, your visual acuity may not be affected. Treatment is to give the patient an eye shield for at least a week, and obviously the ophthalmology follow-up, in which case they'll consider surgical procedures as needed. Um, you're gonna control pain, nausea, and vomiting, because obviously the patient's in pain, if they have nausea, if they have vomiting, all these things are gonna increase their intraocular pressure. So you want the patient to be um, calm, relaxed, and not in pain. So if they have any other symptoms like nausea, vomiting, pain, anything like that, you need to make sure they're super comfortable so that they don't further exacerbate the bleed, the intraocular pressure, and things like that. If there's an open globe, um, it was already a very urgent matter. If there's an open globe, it's even more of an urgent matter. Um, an open globe, like we said, is any kind of tear through the layers of the eyes, which is deep enough to allow for the vitreous humor to exit the eye. So any open globe is 100% emergency, and we would definitely not want to try to check any intraocular pressure or anything like that if we suspect an open globe. Okay. And what was the sign that we see sometimes when we do an eye stain and the patient has an open globe? All right, cool. Waterfall, Seidel, all of that stuff. You guys pay attention. That's awesome. Um, what else is here? So there are surgical indications. I am not going to test you on surgical indications because we don't do surgery. <laughs> um, and you're going to have them evaluated by an ophthalmologist anyway, so you don't need to know specific intraocular pressures for patients with uh, hyphema. I don't think it's important or relevant. I don't think anybody's going to ask you about that. Um, and if you're in an outpatient setting, you're, that patient's getting evaluated anyway. But a normal intraocular pressure, depending on where you read it, is around 10 to 20. Okay. Uh, but some books will say 12 to 24, or some will say 8 to 16, but it's within that range, okay? Uh, I like 10 to 20 because it's in the middle of all the ranges. And that's a normal IOP. And then anything usually over 30 is something that needs to be worked up very urgently, okay? Any questions on this so far? All right, cool. We, we talked for a second about subconjunctival hemorrhages, um, and I'm going to pull up a picture of that so that way you guys never forget it. But subconjunctival hemorrhages usually are not concerning. Uh, no. Subconsciously. So subconjunctival hemorrhages look like yay, okay? They're not dangerous, right? They're usually not concerning. They should be painless. These patients shouldn't have pain, okay? But they're very common. They're usually not dangerous. If they have eye pain with the subconjunctival hemorrhage, if they have vision pain or vision loss with the subconjunctival hemorrhage, then you get worried, right? But if they just have a, pa a painless bleed, a subconjunctival hemorrhage, you're not worried, right? So you can see how it's not within the corneal area. You don't see it at all. It's all in the conjunctiva, okay? Usually, usually uh, nothing to be worried about. You just need to be careful if they have any other concerning symptoms along with it, or if they have a trauma associated to it, you need to evaluate for other injuries. But the actual subconjunctival hemorrhage usually does not cause any complications. And the, what they like to ask you on boards 
is they try to freak you out with it and ask you what to do, and you're always like, well, I'm not just going to do nothing. And usually the answer is you just do nothing, right? So they don't even need an ophthalmology follow-up. All right. But we do it anyway in clinical practice. We put ophthalmology follow-up just to, just to cover yourself, right? Question? What causes it? Usually spontaneous. Um, I've had like four of them. Usually I'll like squeeze really hard and hold it in. And then I'll look at the mirror later in the mirror and go, why do I do that? And then I have a Trauma can do it too. I'll put like a poke in the eye. I got one. But usually the patient's like, I don't know what happened. I just look in the mirror and boom, here it is. Can you put contact? Usually not. Unless you put it in your eye and accidentally kick your eye really hard and look at the vessel. But just use the contact because it usually is not related really to something that's going on. It is related to abrasion and colitis if you just have a mass damage. Anything else? You got me a pointer and I'm not using it at all. Aha. All right. Glaucoma. So, this one has a laser. All right, cool. So, uh, within the eye, you have the anterior chamber, you have the posterior chamber, um, but interestingly enough, those are all part of the anterior compartment of the eye, and then the vitreous is usually circulating here. Um, the ciliary bodies that are attached to the lens, okay, uh, produce the vitreous beads, okay? What's up? The subconjunctival area would be here. So this is the conjunctiva, so it'd be this area here. And then this would be, it's like a hyphema, it would be accumulating right here. A subconjunctival hemorrhage, the blood would be accumulating here. So you see none of this, so this is, this is the posterior um, uh, chamber of the eye, okay? It's, it's, it's weird because there's a posterior chamber, but the, the anterior chamber is divided into the anterior part of the anterior chamber and the posterior part of the anterior chamber. It's really confusing. And then there's the posterior part of the eye. So in this anterior part here, if you have uh, accumulation of blood, that's all connected to this, to the whole structure. So it's gonna increase the pressure in the eye and put pressure on the nerve, on the optic disc and um, the optic nerve. And it can also put pressure on all the vasculature and cause a decrease in blood flow, which can cause permanent vision loss. But if the blood is here, this is not connected whatsoever to here. So usually it's gonna accumulate here and then whatever vessel's causing the bleeding after a certain amount of pressure, it'll just stop and it'll stop bleeding and you'll be good to go, usually, um, for the most part. So the aqueous humor is produced here, um, as we all remember from anatomy and the ciliary bodies, and it accumulates in the eye and then there's a canal in the anterior chamber here, the canal of Schlem, does it have a canal of Schlem here? No, it doesn't. Well, anyway, there's a canal of Schlem here which reabsorbs the humor and brings it back into venous circulation and throughout the body. So, if you can imagine, if this area here gets blocked, you can't what? You can't drain, right? So if you can't drain it, it just keeps building up. And if it keeps building up, you're gonna get more pressure, and if you get more pressure, you're gonna get the same thing you had in a hyphema, right? So the whole concept is the same, just instead of a buildup of blood, the buildup of what's supposed to be there, which is vitreous humor, okay? So that buildup can happen for a couple different reasons. There's, there's two different types of glaucoma. There's acute angle closure glaucoma, and then there's chronic um, or open angle. So acute closed angle or open angle. So just think about the name. One of them, this angle closes. So this angle closes, 
and when it closes, you have a sudden, all of a sudden, you cannot drain any more um, vitreous humor at all, very suddenly, so it accumulates very rapidly. It's gonna cause a lot of pain, because it's gonna be a sudden increase in pressure. It's gonna cause a lot of pain, and an immediate uh, pressure on the optic nerve, on the vessels, so usually it's gonna present with very sudden visual symptoms and very sudden onset. You get that angle to close completely. Question. Is that a good way to go up? Infections don't happen very quickly. So no, it's not, nothing to do with infection. Um, you're not gonna get a rapid onset infection from not being able to drain it. It's just gonna build up and cause a lot of pressure. Now you can have an infection, and an infection can definitely put pressure here and close this off and cause a, in a, a um, angle closure. It's not really called glaucoma at that point. I mean, Anything that blocks that off is going to cause an issue. You know, you can have a surgery close it off. You're going to get a little pressure. You're going to get a glaucoma like symptom. But typically, it'll happen. Um, uh, it'll happen to patients, and it'll be sudden. Okay. So that's acute angle closure glaucoma. So it's acute. It happens suddenly. Because it happens so suddenly, the body has no time to adapt. It's very painful, and it's very rapid onset. Um, and it's called angle closure because this angle closes and doesn't allow the vitreous humor to drain through the canal stone. So acute angle closure. And then there's um, the more chronic form of it, okay, which is more, much more common, which is open angle, which means that this angle is open, okay, there's just something there that's slowing down the, block, the passage of the vitreous humor through the canal stone. Usually it's a buildup of different um, proteins that get uh, deposited in the area over time and age, and that will cause a mild increase in pressure over time, and over a long period of time, it can cause gradual and progressive visual changes. But it is not acute, it's not sudden, uh, and usually it has a much better prognosis. Your body has, you know, your, your ciliary muscles will produce a little bit less vitreous humor, you can give them medications to help control the pressures over time, and those things will improve the patient's uh, outcomes long term. So acute angle closure, emergency, uh, you need to drop that pressure ASAP if possible. And then uh, open angle, still concerning, can have long-term effects, but not an acute, not an emergency, all right? Does that all make sense? Any questions? All right. Oh, so another thing, I completely skipped over this, but if you have an increase in pressure in the eye, um, especially in the, the chronic form, it's gonna put a lot of pressure on this area and it's gonna actually push it in and it's gonna create a cupping effect, right? So if you imagine if all this pressure builds up, this is a whole sealed area, but you have this area here where there's an opening for all the optic vessels, the nerves to pass through. That area there is kind of like a, a weak point uh, and it will indent inward. So when you do a fundoscopic exam, you're gonna see cupping of the optic disc. Okay, so you're gonna see a cupping of the optic disc. So instead of it just being normal like this, you'll see more of a cupping around the disc, um, and that's associated with, so a lot of times that's what they ask you on test questions. Uh, findings on fundoscopic exam associated to glaucoma, and usually um, increased cup to disc ratio, and cupping of the disc is what you'll have as your, as your answer choice for those type of questions, all right? All right, so, I know this is a lot of information, I'm sorry. <laughs> I told you, I like to have very limited amount of slides, 
but sometimes it leads to slides like this, which are extremely long. I think it's great to have things all on one page, though. And if it bothers you, you can separate it out or do whatever you're going to do. So um, open angle, okay, we talked about that. It's the more gradual form. The angle's open. It's over time slowly decreased um, passage of the vitreous humor through the canal of Schlem. And it's usually asymptomatic at first because you're not going to notice it until it starts causing an elevation in the um, intraocular pressure or until it causes any kind of um, uh, visual disturbances. So usually it presents asymptomatically and it'll be diagnosed incidentally like a patient comes in for some other unrelated issue and you have to check their intraocular pressure because you don't really check intraocular pressure as a routine uh, evaluation. But you check it and you realize, oh man, your intraocular pressure is elevated for some completely unrelated cause. And then you're like, hey, maybe you have glaucoma. And that's usually how it's diagnosed. Okay? So it's usually diagnosed incidentally when it's open angle. Slow, painless. Um, this is one of the things that's going to present bilaterally. Usually these deposits happen in both eyes gradually over time. You may have one eye affected more than the other, but usually it doesn't just affect one eye. Okay? It's a gradual process and usually affects both sides. Uh, and this is for open angle, right? Acute angle closure is more common to happen on one eye. Um, so acute angle closure glaucoma, we said it was an emergency. It's rapid onset. It's usually unilateral. It's uncommon that you're going to have a sudden closure of both canals at the same time. Very, very, very uncommon and very unlikely. Um, and because it happens so suddenly, it causes severe pain. Most of these patients' chief complaint when they come in is eye pain for the most part. Okay? So severe eye pain. And this is why when you have patients, um, and, and it also, the eye gets red, right? The eye does get red. So sometimes you see a patient with a red eye, it's painful. These are the patients, remember I told you when you do the stains and you put the topical uh, drops in their eye to relieve the pain and it gets better? If they have a glaucoma, you put the drops in there, they're still gonna be in excruciating pain, right? So that's why those tests are very helpful. If you're seeing a patient in an outpatient setting and you're a little bit worried, maybe they have a history of, um, have a concern of some kind of risk factor for glaucoma, you put the drops in there and they feel much better, it's not glaucoma. It's probably something on the surface of the eye, right? Whereas these patients may present with red eyes, you might think, oh, maybe they have a foreign body and exposure, maybe they have a conjunctivitis. You put those drops in there and they don't get any better, now you're more worried about something more malignant, something more concerning in these patients, right? And then you would check the intraocular pressure and that would give you an idea of what's going on. So in acute angle closure glaucoma, they like to tell you, um, especially on test questions, they'll ask you about the patient's symptoms, and typically they'll describe seeing halos around lights, um, photophobia, which I put in inappropriate space in between, so it says photophobia, um, peripheral vision loss, uh, which then later develops into central vision loss. And the really, 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 really big thing that they like to ask you with acute angle closure glaucoma is the patients have a fixed and dilated pupil. Um, so if you ever see fixed dilated pupil on an exam question, this is, I wouldn't say pathognomonic because there's other things that will cause fixed dilated pupils, uh, other sexually transmitted infections and things like that related to the eye. But this is very, very, very close. So if they have eye pain, fixed dilated pupil, you know very, very well that it's probably a patient with acute angle closure buckle. All right. Um, so intraocular pressure alone elevated doesn't establish a diagnosis. So you can have a patient that has an elevated intraocular pressure. It doesn't mean they have glaucoma. You can have an elevated intraocular pressure for a lot of reasons. They can be overproducing um, vitreous humor. They can have other conditions that cause this. It doesn't have to be glaucoma. So just an elevated IOP alone 
doesn't diagnose the patient with glaucoma. It's a constellation of symptoms. Um, you know, so if the patient has eye pain, elevated IOP, then you can diagnose them. But just an elevated pressure alone doesn't, doesn't mean that. And sometimes you can have transient rises in intraocular pressure. So don't just focus on that number to consider making a diagnosis for glaucoma. Uh, so as far as treatment goes, for open angle glaucoma, which we said is the one that's not as severe, it's chronic, it happens over time, you have time to treat it. The treatment of choice is using prostaglandin analogs, and what that does is it helps maintain the canal of Schlem patent, and you're gonna see that they use prostaglandins, I think you guys have cardio this semester, they use it to maintain other openings in the body open. So like in patients who have certain heart defects and things like that, sometimes they want to maintain them open for certain reasons, which you'll learn about. Prostaglandins do that, okay? Uh, in addition to that, you can also use beta blockers, which will help reduce the production of the vitreous humor. So one of them will help um, maintain patent, uh, patency of the canal stem to help drainage of the vitreous humor. The beta blockers will help decrease the production of the vitreous humor, okay? If for acute angle closure glaucoma, you wanna decrease your intraocular pressure relatively quickly. So acetazolamide is typically the, um, one of the first medications that's used as it's gonna quickly decrease the production of aqueous humor. So wherever they're at with their intraocular pressure, it's gonna reduce that significantly, okay, initially, because it's not, they're not gonna keep producing, the pressure is not gonna keep increasing. Usually it works very well. And then you can also do topical medications, uh, topical beta blockers, and those are gonna help uh, to open the angle as much as possible to then allow it to continue draining, right? So you wanna stop the production of aqueous humor, and then you want to allow the passage of drainage. And those are the two medications that are typically gonna do it. Uh, there are a lot of other medications that can do it, um, pilocarpine, which is going to induce constriction, which is going to reduce the angle closure. So that's another thing to take into account too, which I completely forgot to mention. If you have a dilation of the pupil, the opening of this um, and, and the constriction of these muscles to dilate the pupil increases the, the, the angle, so it's going to cause further occlusion. Okay, so you kind of don't want that to happen because it's going to increase the pressure. So part of the treatment is using medications that induce pupillary constriction to help reduce the angle to help support the flow of um, the vitreous humor into the canal limb, if that makes sense. Um, so you could just point a light right in their eye constantly and then just keep it, keep it, don't do that. But it will work. They'll, they'll usually feel a little bit better, right, when you do that. I'm glad. I got two people laughing at my jokes. That's two more than I did last semester. I got it. All right, getting better. All right. Um, so all patients with acute angle closure glaucoma should undergo prophylactic um, laser irotomy. So this, again, not something I'm gonna test you on because you guys are not gonna be doing these surgical procedures, but part of the treatment in these patients that have had an acute angle closure glaucoma, uh, there's a surgical procedure where they actually burn a hole. There's a laser, there we go. They'll burn a hole right through here through the iris, and then that'll decrease the risk that this can flop over and close the angle. Okay, so they'll burn a hole right through there and then that'll prevent that from happening. And usually they'll do it on the other eye also, so it doesn't affect the other eye, okay? And then there's another procedure where they, instead of doing that, they actually just go. So remember we said that there's sometimes a buildup that can occur with the open angle? They can go in there and burn through that buildup. So there's two different procedures that are commonly done in patients who have um, glaucoma, uh, but usually more related to acute, because chronic can be managed over time with medications. All right. 
All right, so what's that? Cool, cataracts, right? Uh, cataracts is a cloudy opacity that develops in the lens of a patient. Obviously, if you have an opacity in the lens, you're going to have a very hard time seeing because light is not going to be able to properly transfer to the back of the eye, which is where you see from. So these patients are obviously going to have visual changes. Um, this is a gradual process. It doesn't happen acutely. Um, usually, it's caused by age-related degeneration of the lens. The lens breaks down. It develops opacities due to natural processes in the body and degradation of the lens. It's the most common cause. Okay? But there's other, we talked about a complication of a treatment that can also cause this. And I said I never do this because it can cause that. We talked about it yesterday. So medication that is put in the eye or taken to a form and you cause cataracts. Steroids. Cool, yeah, steroids. So that's why I kind of don't like putting steroids in place if I don't need to. Um, topical steroids, oral steroids, any steroids can increase the risk. Um, does that mean you can't use steroids? No. That just means that I prescribe them consciously. But that's just one of the things they do that I don't like. They do a lot of things I don't like. So if I don't need to prescribe them, I don't. So um, cataracts can be caused by medication side effects. It can be caused by the agents. Um, you can also have traumatic cataracts, so if you have some kind of eye trauma and it causes a buildup within the lens, that can cause too. There's a lot of congenital conditions that can predispose you to developing cataracts. And those are the more, some of the more common causes. Um, how do you think you fix that? Surgery, yeah, you just get a new lens, right? You leave it alone until it gets really bad, and then you, you take it out, all right? So uh, cataracts is an opacity of the lens. Um, which may or may not cause visual impairment. So some people have it and they can see okay. And usually we only do surgery on them if the patient's having some kind of significant negative impact on um, their activities of daily life. Uh, it's the leading cause of blindness worldwide. Um, a lot of people who are in their 60s to 70s have cataracts, a very uh, pretty significant proportion. So when you see that, I mean, it doesn't mean that 50% of people are walking around like this, barely being able to see out of one eye, but 50% of people have some varying degree Cataracts. It might be very mild, it might not cause any visual impairment, but it's a very, very common uh, uh, condition. Aging is the most common cause uh, or most common risk factor after 60 years of age. Uh, excessive exposure to sunlight, smoking, steroids, uh, diabetic patients, diabetes, smoking is a risk factor for pretty much everything. So, um, acquired immune diseases, systemic immune diseases, diabetes, uh, steroid use, congenital, we talked about that. Um, and then there's certain infections that can cause it. I'm not going to test you guys on those. This is a big peds topic, though. Uh, they'll talk to you guys about rubella, mumps, um, and other uh, uh, conditions that can be transferred sexually, usually through birth, through the birth canal. And they can have a lot of complications in the eyes. But uh, that's very heavily covered in your pediatrics module and also an infectious disease. So we don't, I'm not going to test you guys a lot on uh, infectious causes in pediatric populations for eye-related conditions. Right, you're going to get hammered away with that in other, in other modules. Cataracts is painless. So, you know, if you suspect cataracts, the patient should not be having any pain. So if you have a vignette with pain, it's not cataracts. Um, it's a progressive process. It doesn't cause acute vision loss. It causes gradual vision loss. The typical test question will give you a patient who's having trouble driving, reading road signs, usually at night, okay, in, in low-light environments. You can imagine that if you have uh, an opacity in your lens and... You're driving around at night, there's not a lot of light. So you already have not a lot of light, and now you have it coming in through a lens that's obscured. You're going to have less light coming in. You're going to have a hard time driving at night. All right? 
So cataracts, night driving, um, what else? Did I miss anything here? And reading fine print, okay? Usually in low light environments is where you're gonna have a patient who presents. If you have a patient in a low light environment having trouble seeing, older patient, or any kind of risk factors that we talked about, it's a very, very, very likely uh, cataract question, okay? Um, so differential diagnosis is retinoblastoma. Retinoblastoma is a cancer of the retina. It usually presents with more of a reddish appearing uh, lens, but uh, it's just a differential. Usually retinoblastoma is diagnosed much younger in life, um, so it's not easy to confuse, but anyway. Um, you're gonna refer the patient to ophthalmology. You're not gonna really do anything for them in, in an outpatient setting. Um, ophthalmologists will evaluate them, monitor them over time, and when and if it's indicated, we'll refer them for surgery, okay? Um, so the treatment of choice is surgery. The specific surgery is called an extracapsular cataract um, extraction. So they literally remove the lens and they replace it with an artificial lens and the patient's fine. It's a pretty quick procedure, it's easy, there's not a lot of complications. It sounds scary because it's your eye, but a lot of times it's fine. Most of the time it's fine. Um, what else? So if patients have unilateral cataracts, um, which sometimes they have both, a lot of patients will have cataract on both sides. That happens quite often. But if it's unilateral, a lot of times they'll postpone surgery because usually if one of your eyes is good, you'll be seeing pretty good. So um, if you can function well in that capacity, they'll delay the surgery. Because even though it's a relatively safe procedure, Usually you try not to do procedures if you don't have to. Um, also, usually when you do the procedure, you'll do one eye at a time. If you have any kind of complication of surgery, you still got one good eye, right? So they'll typically do one at a time. Any questions about cataracts? All right. So retinal detachment and retinal tears, exactly what they sound like. The retina is the uh, all over the inside of your eye connected to the choroid plexus of the eye, and it's sitting there, and usually that's perfectly normal, but sometimes it can come loose from the choroid, and it can come into the eye, and you can imagine that that can come in and block the lens, right, if it detaches, so let me see if I can get some. So if you have a detachment um, of, the, of the retina, and it comes into the area where either your fovea or your macula is, uh, and it obstructs the passage of light, it's gonna cause uh, and that's what they typically characterize as like a curtain falling over your eye, because the retina will come over and it'll cover the fovea macula, and that'll cause like a curtain-like vision loss. So the patients will say they feel like a curtain's closing over their eye and they can't see. That's a very typical descriptor and test questions and things like that associated to retinal detachment. Um, so that's detachment, and then tear is just a, actually a tear in the retina, okay? They can come together, you can have a tear without having a detachment, so. There's varying grades of detachment, and detachment can happen in any part of the eye. So obviously, depending on where the detachment is, depends on how bad the patient's complications are gonna be, right? If you have a detachment around here, where literally all light is focused in your central vision, you're gonna have a huge impairment in your vision. If you have one that's superior, and it doesn't affect your vision, it's not gonna be as, um, be as bad, right? Also depends on the degree of these detachments. If you have a large attachment, it's going to be worse. If you have a small attachment, it's going to be a trap. When it comes to tears, um, tears is literally a tear in the retina, and that can occur for various reasons, which we'll talk about. When you have a tear, you usually want to fix it, but a lot of times the patients will complain of like little floaters in their vision, 
and those tears can actually cause small parts of the retina to start floating in the vitreous. I have a bunch of those things, like I have an off on mine, and they're super annoying. It's like these little black things floating around everywhere. They're kind of big. When you're like in a big bright room, or like in a white room, you just see them everywhere, and then they move. It's really annoying. So, <laughs> you have them too? <laughs> a lot of things happen to this side, specifically. Yeah. This one's all right. Um, so, when it comes to the tears, the patient might be complaining of floaters and things like that, flashes of light, that can happen with tears and attachments, the common presenting symptom. Um, so what do you guys think will cause this more commonly than not? from trauma, you can get blood pool up there and it'll detach it. That can happen from infection, you can get pus and bacteria and swelling and that will detach it. Um, it can happen for a lot of happen from blood. You can have malignancies that can develop in the area and cause a detachment. So really anything that affects that region of the eye can cause a detachment. But more often than all of that, it's some kind of injury. So um, retinal tear is vitreous pools and tears of the retina, which can occur in multiple places. Uh, the way that typically um, tears are treated is that they freeze them, right? So you have a tear, they'll um, come in and they'll freeze the area and that'll cause the, the area that's torn and kind of like flopping around to stick back to the choroid and it'll freeze it in place. And usually that'll fix the tear. Um, Surgery, so there's a scleral buccal procedure, which sounds weird, but it's literally, they put like a band around the eye and it compresses the eye and it brings the choroid closer to the retina and it'll seal the tear or the detachment. And I'll show you guys a picture because I know that sounds weird. Um, so they literally put like a band around your eye, right? It's not a rubber band, um, usually made out of like some kind of plastic, or, but it's a band that goes around the eye and it'll compress it and it'll bring the retina uh, and, the, and the choroid together and then it'll allow them to heal together, all right? Um, the other thing that they can do is that they can, especially if it's in the top of your eye, they can inject air into your eye. So they'll shoot air into your eye and that air bubble rises up to the top of your eye and it lifts the tear back into place. Obviously only works if the tear's in the top of your eye. Eventually that bubble will get resolved and the tear will be in place and your body will heal up again. Uh, usually, no, usually it, it chills there for, it's permanent. Yeah, yeah. Um, where was I? Back to the lecture. 
All right. So the sclerobuccal procedure, um, and then you maintain the patient's supine while you're awaiting consult, right? Usually these tears come from the top, as you can imagine, because of gravity. So somewhere in the upper region of the eye, but for you to have a tear from bottom up, it's kind of weird. Um, so not extremely common. So if you have the patient lay supine, it's gonna help the pressure lay back on the retina and help the retina lay flat where it belongs. Whereas if you have a tear up here and it's falling down and you're standing, it's just gonna hang out there. You lay down, and it'll kind of fall back into place. So that's usually the ideal position to keep the patient while they're waiting for consult, right? As opposed to um, hyphema, where you kind of want the patient a little bit more elevated, um, just to uh, make sure that the, it settles more in the inferior and posterior part of the eye and not anywhere on the, um, on the cornea. So retinal detachment is a progressive condition where the retina separates from the epithelium on the choroid. Um, So we talked about traction, which is when there's some kind of injury that causes a friction, a friction force that detaches the retina. We talked about exudate, which is when you have some kind of fluid that accumulates. We talked about pus, we talked about blood, um, and those are the two we talked about. So any kind of fluid formation. We talked about the symptoms already, which are flashes of light, floaters. Um, again, this is usually a painless uh, vision loss. So when it comes to painless vision loss, we already talked about which ones? Cataracts. Now we're talking about renal detachment. Obviously, if your patient is there because they got kicked in the face and now they have a renal detachment, it's not going to be painless, right? Because they got kicked in the face. But usually, the actual detachment itself, the vision loss, is painless. Unless it's as a result of a trauma, in which case, obviously, yeah, it'll be in pain. Um, and then we talked about painful causes of vision loss so far, which we've talked about. Glaucoma and hyphema, right? So hyphema and glaucoma are some painful causes, right? So uh, there's a lot of different buckets and ways you can try to remember things. Painful versus painless vision loss is something you should always have in your brain. So you can, you know, if you have a patient who has vision loss, you can be like, okay, cool, I'm gonna go in that bucket. Painful, what's painful causes? Yours is painless, let me go to my painless causes, right? So that's a good differentiating factor, painful or painless, so make sure you know those really well. Um, so this is usually painless. All right. Uh, obviously, you're going to need an ophthalmology consult immediately. So these patients, a lot of times, we'll refer them to the ED. Um, how would you be able to see whether or not they have a retinal detachment? Fundoscopic exam, right? Fundoscopic exam. So you do a fundoscopic exam, and you actually be able to see parts of the um, of the retina if there's a tear, or you might actually be able to see the detachment of the retina because you won't be able to get a good view in, you won't be able to identify the fold in the macula. So fundoscopic exam is a very good diagnostic test. Um, any questions? All right. Next we're gonna talk about macular degeneration, which is literally degeneration of the macula, okay? Uh, the macula is a very important part where we see from. It's the most important part is where we get our central vision from. So patients who have macular degeneration typically have their central vision affected, right? We talked about a lot of things that can cause more peripheral type vision loss and low light situations. So this is progressive, it happens over time. It usually happens because of age-related uh, complications. So this is something that happens in older patients, which is another way to remember things, put them in buckets, right? Like painful, painless, 
old people, young people, it happens to anybody. So these are all important buckets to put them in. So macular degeneration, bless you, um, happens over time in the gradual process, older patients, right? There's different types of degeneration. There's wet and then there's dry, right? And the easiest way to remember this um, is that wet has to do with something liquidy, like blood. It's due to vascularization. So wet and is due to vascularization. I remember that because blood is wet. So usually what happens with wet and is that blood vessels um, from the choroid will grow into the retina and through where the macula is, and that will cause degeneration of the tissues, fluid buildup, and it will cause problems with central vision due to vascularization, abnormal vascularization, right? Um, so that's wet AMD. And then dry AMD has nothing to do with uh, any blood vessel formation. It has to do with drusen deposits. And drusen deposits are deposits of protein, fats, and things like that that occur on the retina. And I always remember that dry AMD, dry starts with D, and so does drusen. So dry AMD is related to drusen deposits, and wet, related to blood, which is wet, okay? So dry and wet. Uh, typically, central vision loss, older patients, there's dry and wet, okay? There's no treatment, you can't fix it, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen over time. Somebody who has macular degeneration, you're pretty much telling them, hey, eventually you're gonna be blind. And it's a, it is a gradual process, it's gonna affect both eyes, so it's kind of like a very concerning condition because you can't have to tell your patient, like, hey, there's not a whole lot we can do for it. Um, especially with dry, with wet, we said that the problem was what? Vascularization, right? So theoretically, you can slow down the vascularization, you can slow down the progression of disease. So with those patients, you can actually inject into the area of vascularization different medications that can reduce the vascularization, okay? Um, and I list the medications here. And again, this is something you'd probably never do from any kind of outpatient center. Um, this is something that would be done on an outpatient referral to an ophthalmologist. Um, but endothelial growth factor inhibitor, so it's going to inhibit the formation of um, uh, vasculature in the endothelium. It's going to help in patients who have wet AMD, uh, wet AMD. Um, and then also monoclonal antibodies. But usually when they ask you a question about this, they're going to ask you about endothelial growth factor inhibitors because they want you to know that this is something caused by blood vessel formation and that if you can just inhibit it, you can help the patient decrease their... Um, the progression of their symptoms. Uh, for dry AMD, there's really not a lot. It says here you can take antioxidants, vitamin A, vitamin C, uh, vitamin E, zinc, and all these things to help prevent and slow the progression. Uh, evidence on that is not very um, reliable, but again, you're not gonna hurt anybody by giving them some, uh, some vitamins. So a lot of times they'll prescribe vitamin A, vitamin E, zinc, and all these things, and antioxidants to help prevent the uh, deterioration. Uh, and then they're studying treatment with stem cells, but again, that's, these are all things that are under study, so there's no reliable form of treatment for dry AMD. For wet, you have the inhibition of endothelial growth factors. I feel like I repeat the same thing 60 times, but I feel like every time one more of you hears it. <laughs> all right, any questions about macular degeneration? No? All right, cool. All right, so now we got um, occlusions, okay? So you have veins in your eyes and you have arteries in your eyes, all right? And both of them can become occluded, okay? If a vein becomes occluded, it's gonna look like this. It's either gonna be a branch occlusion, 
or it's going to be a central occlusion. And what that means is literally where the occlusion is happening. If it's happening on a branch of a vein, so obviously when you're looking and you're doing a fundoscopic exam, the center is where everything's coming through the optic disc, right? That's where you're going to have your central occlusions. And a branch occlusion is when it branches out and it goes around the eye, you can have a branch occlusion. So if you ever get a picture like this, it's very easy because you can see here the optic disc pretty well. And you can see that an entire branch looks like it's bloody on the fundoscopic exam. So it's literally just like a branch, right? Whereas with central, everything's affected because all of the vasculature is going to be affected. And you're going to have edema within the eye and you're going to have a bunch of hemorrhages within the eye. Um, and usually what they say is it looks like a blood and thunder appearance. Um, I don't know if I really see that or not, but they like to describe it as a blood and thunder appearance when you have a central occlusion. Whereas when you have a branch occlusion, they'll describe it as a certain field of the, um, on the fundoscopic exam that has this bloody pattern and bloody appearance, right? So diffuse, central. Branch, literally a segment or a branch of the fundoscopic exam and of the retina is gonna have this bloody appearance, okay? Any questions about that so far? All right. So this is the second most common cause of vision loss from retinal vascular disease, which is not a very important fact for you to know at all. Um, there's no treatments that are proven to reopen the occluded retinal veins, right? So once it happens, it happens, you're gonna have the occlusion. There's not really a whole lot that you can do. Um, usually there's gonna be neovascularization of the retina, so new vessels are gonna form around the area where this um, rupture occurred. Um, we talked about there's branch retinal occlusion and there's central retinal occlusion. Okay? And branch happens in a distal retinal vein uh, leading to a hemorrhage along the distribution just of that vein, which is what produces that characteristic pattern we saw where it's just in one area. Whereas in central, the thrombus is located at the level of the optic nerve and therefore all the vessels are gonna be affected and you're gonna have the complete diffuse blood and thunder appearance on fundoscopic exam. All right. So in central retinal vein occlusion, that's gonna be more common in elderly patients. Um, and obviously if you have a vein affected near the optic, uh, uh, near the optic disc and you have uh, edema in the eye around the optic disc, it's gonna to lead to some sudden visual changes in these patients, right? So they're gonna have an acute sudden monocular vision loss, okay? Um, on the exam, you're gonna dilate the fundus and look for retinal hemorrhages, right? Uh, extensive retinal hemorrhages when you're looking at central. Uh, association, so guys, anything that can affect your blood vessels can predispose you to having rupture of your blood vessels. So hypertension, diabetes, any patients who have any kind of vascular disease, they're gonna have it everywhere, in their eyes, in their heart, in their kidneys, in their extremities, it's gonna be everywhere. So it's gonna affect the eyes. So diabetic patients, old patients, uh, hypertensive patients, all risk factors, um, not just for this, but also for artery occlusion, which we're gonna cover next. Uh, hyperviscosity syndrome, so patients who have hypercoagulable states, so patients with factor V laden and all these other conditions you're gonna learn about in genetics. Um, patients who uh, are taking oral contraceptives, whatever the case is. These patients who are in hypercoagulable states have a risk for coagulation, which can happen in the eyes as well, right? So look for those kind of risk factors and things like that on your questions to point you in that direction, all right? Everything in a question, when, when I, especially when I ask a question, but it should be when everybody asks a question, everything in the question is pointing you towards a diagnosis. And usually on PA questions, you shouldn't be getting things thrown in there just to confuse you. Um, so everything that you read in the question should be signal to where they're pointing you. 
they don't throw distractors in there. They'll throw distractors on the answers, definitely, but in the question, it's all facts. So if the patient has it, they have it. If you don't read it there, it's not there. You can't assume anything. So when I put things like that, it's for a reason. If I'm telling you a patient's taking a certain medication, that's not just there for fun. It's there because it's contributing to the question, or at least it should be. Um, so diagnosis, you're going to do a fundoscopic exam. You're going to see extensive hemorrhages, all right? And for the treatment, um, you're going to do uh, uh, growth factor inhibitors, um, and that's going to help improve the edema and improve uh, any kind of or reduce the risk of permanent vision loss as a result of the hemorrhages, okay? Um, glucocorticoids can also help with the edema, okay? So um, intravitreal glucocorticoids can help with the edema and help stop the bleeding. Uh, and it can either, so when, the, when this happens to these patients, a lot of time the prognosis is kind of up in the air. It may just resolve and the patient may get better. Or if there's any kind of extensive damage, depending on the amount of bleeding, the amount of edema, the patient can have permanent vision loss. So it just depends on the severity, right? All these patients are obviously, these are all emergencies, and all these patients are going to be evaluated emergently by ophthalmology. And then we have retinal artery occlusion, okay? So retinal artery occlusion, again, just like the veins, you can have central or you can have branch. So same idea, but a little different. So with the veins, we had bleeding, we had edema um, as a result of the occlusion of the vein, right? Because remember, veins are draining out. They're draining the blood out of the eyes. So if you block it, the blood's going to accumulate in the eye. So you're going to have edema, you're going to have hemorrhages. The arteries are bringing blood into the eye. So if you block it, you're going to have no blood in the eye. So as opposed to having bleeding in the eye with the vein occlusion because it can't get out, the blood can't get in, your retina is going to look very pale, right? The same way when you have um, an ischemic emboli in an arm or a leg, it turns pale. Uh, when it happens in the eye, it turns pale, okay? It turns pale except for the area where the occlusion is, right in the center um, near the optic disc, and that's why it leads to a very characteristic cherry red spot, okay? Cherry red spot. So if you see a cherry red spot, that's going to um, uh, be an indicator to you of a central retinal artery occlusion. So if they say like diffuse pallor in the retina with a spot, that's going to tell you that it's uh, central retinal. As opposed to a branch retinal artery occlusion, which is going to lead to that same finding, but just in the distribution of the blocked artery. It's literally the same thing, but just a little different. All right, so branch and central. Very similar, but very different. Does anybody have any questions so far about this? All right. So um, retinal artery thrombus or embolus, uh, it's common in 50 to 80-year-olds because obviously the older we get, the more comorbidities we have, the more risks we have of developing hypertension, diabetes, and all this other atherosclerotic disease. These plaques and things like that build up over time in our bodies, so the older you get, the higher chance you have of having these develop. Okay, so commonly a disorder that affects older people or people who have a high risk for coagulation, okay? Um, it's a, considered a form of stroke, okay, because you're having a, um, an acute emboli affecting um, an area of your body, like your eye, which is uh, causing an occlusion. It's probably going to cause you to have some permanent vision loss. So it's a form of stroke, and it's treated very similarly to stroke. Um, and if this patient has an occlusion in the eye, you have to be very worried about where else they may either already have an occlusion or be about to develop an occlusion or where in the world did the occlusion come from? Okay, so these are all things in these patients that you need to be worried about, which is why they usually get very extensive workups. Uh, markedly elevated ESR and CRP. 
So ESR is erythrocyte sedimentation rate and CRP. It, these, the C-reactive protein, these markers are not important. You're going to see them all over the place on a million test questions. Um, people order them, and I don't, kind of don't know why most of the time. It literally just tells you there's some kind of inflammation somewhere in your body. Not very useful. Um, if it's extremely elevated with certain conditions, they can be helpful. But usually those tests are, are just elevated, um, you know, and, and, and just like you see here, it can be normal. So it's not a very useful test. Um, so if you see it on a question, don't really focus on that as, as a particular indicator of anything because it's usually not important. There are some forms of um, like headaches when you do neuro that you're going to see that it is important because it can be extremely, like a, you get a ridiculously elevated number. Then you're thinking about certain diagnoses, but for the most part, it's not extremely important. Um, so it says screen for diabetes and hyperlipidemia. Usually you'll probably already know that the patient has this, but if they have an artery occlusion, it's, they likely have some of these risk factors. Um, if it happens in a younger patient, then you have to suspect some kind of either genetic disease um, or autoimmune disease that can predispose them to blood clots. So anytime you see something happen in somebody young that should only be happening in somebody old, you should probably think of some congenital or genetic defect. Oh, So um, some kind of genetic or, um, you know, same thing like in the heart, you guys are going to learn about some like defects in the heart valve that are very common in elderly patients um, uh, called aortic stenosis, right? Which is when you get like calcifications and build up around the aortic valve. That happens very commonly in old people. When it happens in young people, you think about they were born with an aortic valve that was only had two nutrients, so it had to work extra hard to develop this stenosis tumor. So anytime you have that happen in somebody young, you gotta turn on your antennas to think about genetic causes and, and things like that, right? Um, and you're gonna see that everywhere. It's in pulm, patients who have like um, a pulmonary uh, fibrosis and things like that at a young age, or cystic fibrosis type symptoms at a young age. You think about alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which is genetic, so you're gonna see those things repeat over time as you go along, so always keep that in your head. So. How do you diagnose these patients? You do a lot of things. So you can do an EKG. Why would you do an EKG? What? Atrial fibrillation, what about it? They form clots. So cool, you can get, an, uh, you can have AFib, you can form a clot, the clot can go up, it can go into your eye. Okay? Um, so atrial fibrillation is a very common arrhythmia, and that's actually one of the extremely common questions I'd like to ask you, because you'll be like, oh, this is easy, there's no blood going in, it's a pearl retina, they got a cherry red spot, I got the diagnosis, I'm good, and then they're like, which of the following tests would you order next? And then they'll put a bunch of crazy like, I test, and they'll put an EKG, and you'll be like, hey, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, and it's an EKG, right? To try to find the source of the embryos. So a very, very common question that um, board review series, pants, all that like to ask on your test. Um, echo, same idea, on an echo, you can actually see the thrombus, you can see thrombus formation. Um, CT or MRI, uh, the patient can have vision loss related to other forms of stroke, posterior strokes, things like that, that can cause uh, similar symptoms, so you wanna look for, for that, and you also wanna look for other um, embolic uh, areas that might have been affected. And that's pretty much it. So this is an emergency. You're gonna treat it like a stroke. Patients get oxygen. They get acetazolamide, which is gonna decrease intraocular pressure. We already talked about that. It's gonna reduce the secretion of the vitreous humor. So it's gonna help 
Uh, obviously, if you have elevated intraocular pressure, putting more force on the vessels, it's, it's going to make, um, it's going to cause more ischemia. So lowering that pressure might help a little bit with um, initiating more blood flow into the eye. Um, what else? Obviously, you're going to evaluate the patient for carotid dissection because you can also have ischemia to the eye via the vessels that take blood to the eye and to the vessels and up to the head. So you need to look for that. Um, the patients are going to get admitted. They're going to be on steroids, and they're going to be on aspirin if it's not contraindicated. All right? Temporal artery biopsy. So temporal artery biopsy, the reason they say that, and I don't go too deep into this because um, what, what, essentially what you're doing with these patients is you're trying to rule out all these causes of emboli that can cause vision loss. And this is something you're going to go over in neural, but there's a condition called giant cell, uh, or I'm going to call it temporal arteritis because it makes it easier to remember. So temporal arteritis has to do with your temporal arteries. You can have an occlusion in your temporal arteries, uh, not due to a stroke, but due to inflammation, inflammatory processes in the blood vessels. And that can limit uh, blood flow to your eye and can cause blindness, right? So essentially they're working the patient up with all these tests for all the different causes that can cause a sudden monocular vision loss, okay? So that's why they say temporal artery biopsies. Temporal artery biopsies are the definitive diagnostic test for giant cell arteritis, which you're not going to get tested on, so don't worry about it. And corticosteroids, um, high-dose corticosteroids, is the immediate treatment for giant cell arteritis, which is why they started. It's not going to do any harm, but if it is giant cell arteritis, that's going to help reverse it and restore uh, vision. Okay, So that's why they do it. And they do the treatment before they do a biopsy. So it's not like they're like, oh, we're going to wait for the test results in three days and then we'll start the steroids. They do it immediately, and then they order a biopsy to confirm whether or not it is. Okay. Um, so central retinal, artery, uh, central retinal artery occlusion is sudden monocular um, vision loss. There's no pain or redness associated to it, so it's kind of like, hey, my vision went out of my eye. I don't know what's going on. Um, widespread um, sectoral retinal pallid swelling, so we already talked about that with a cherry red spot of the fovea due to obstruction of retinal blood flow. Uh, visual acuity is reduced to counting fingers or worse, and you have to rule out giant cell arteritis, um, especially in patients who are older. Giant cell arteritis, as we talked about with the, um, so temporal arteritis is one name for it, and giant cell arteritis is the other name for it. So you guys have to also be really good at knowing the 500 different names that they use in medicine to say the same thing. Because sometimes they'll ask you a question and you know the answer, you just, you didn't know that name. So always, when you see multiple names, try to remember both of them. Don't just be like, I'm gonna remember this one because it's easier to remember because they may very well ask you the other one. So always remember multiple names for everything. Um, what else? You're gonna see that in cardio a lot when it, comes to, when it comes to the heart. There's a lot of conditions that they have. Vasospastic angina, Prince Metals angina, um, same thing, five different names. It's really annoying. So get ready for that. Uh, so these patients, you're going to have to check for, we already talked about this, cardiac and carotid. So the Doppler of the carotids to check for carotid occlusion, atherosclerotic plaques in the carotid arteries, uh, cardiac sources of emboli, which is where you can do the echo, you can do the EKG to look for patients who might have AFib, which will be the most common arrhythmia to cause that. But there are other heart conditions that can uh, cause emboli. Um, hematologic disease, so patients who are, have some kind of blood disorders that have caused increased risk for clotting. Um, diabetes, hypertension, which are two huge risk factors. So these are all things you want to consider, right? Uh, and then you have branch uh, retinal artery occlusion, which is also going to cause a sudden loss of a visual field, right? So it's not affecting the whole eye, so you're not going to have loss of vision in the whole eye. You're going to have loss of vision 
in whatever segment of the eye was affected from that branch. Okay. Um, sudden loss of vision, especially if the fovea is involved. Uh, fundal signs are going to show swelling and cotton wool spots confined to the area of the occluded artery. So we already talked about that. It's only going to affect the area and the distribution of the occluded artery, which is why it's called branch. All right? And same idea. You're looking for the same things because you can have a, uh, an emboli that either causes a central occlusion or a retinal occlusion. depends on the size of the emboli, um, you know, where it's going to obstruct. So you're looking for the same things. You're going to order the same type of testing in both of them because they are both caused by the same thing. And that is it. How are we doing on time? We're doing really good on time. Cool. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to do... Wait, what time? We started at 4.30? And we're here till 7, technically? All right, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to do, like, a few minutes. I'm going to do some review questions for you guys from the previous lectures, and then I'll let you go, like, 30 minutes earlier or so. Is that cool? All right, awesome. Thank you.